following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, soon after the Berlin Wall went down a long time ago, the Lord uh, opened a door for our previous church for me to train pastors in Siberia, Russia. And we were not only the first Americans in central Siberia, we were some of the first foreigners that had ever showed up in Siberia. I knew that because I was talking to a missionary friend in a marketplace in central Krasnoyarsk, and a milk lady dressed in the traditional garb of a milk lady uh, was looking at me, and then she started pointing at me because I was talking to my missionary friends, and she said in Russian, Uh, That man is speaking, but I don't understand him. That man is speaking gibberish. And she's totally shocked and blown away by this. And the reason was she had, are you ready for this? Never heard a person speak a foreign language in her life. That's the first time they'd ever seen a foreigner or even heard somebody speaking another language. And she couldn't get over it. Well, amazingly, as I got to know my brothers and sisters in Siberia and uh, up there in that region, I began to understand how the Russian believers had really suffered under communism, there was something that haunted me after my five trips to Siberia and that foreign wasteland. I I met a man who was even more sullen, more depressed, and more negative than the typical Russian. Uh, I learned that under communism, he had been horribly tortured for his faith, and under the stress of that torture, against his will, he had denied Christ. And then he was a mess. Guilt, mixed with a massively messed up theology, made him think that he had lost his salvation. He thought that he had committed the unforgivable sin, that he was a second-class believer, that he was always looked down upon for his scarlet letter sin. Even though the Bible talks about Peter denying Christ and being forgiven, being used mightily of God. Even though all that, he had become a weakened believer. A weakened believer. He was a believer who had been persecuted, really messed up with bad teaching. He was in need of confession. He was in need of prayer. He was in need of sound biblical theology. And he was in desperate need of mature spiritual influence and guidance. Well, the churches that James wrote in this very earliest epistle, these believers were the same. Many were tortured. Some were abused believers, responded well to that persecution, continued on in their faith as if nothing had happened. You know, some people are like that, right? Just horrible things happen to them and they just go right on like it was a speed bump and they're done. But there were others who were tortured who didn't respond well. Some of them were actually exposed as make-believers, as phony Christians, but some went through that really difficult time and they had been severely weakened in their faith. They were struggling. Uh, They were messed up. They were abused so badly they had sinned in the process. And they didn't know how to pray. They didn't know how to think biblically. They didn't know how to get on with their lives. You ever known somebody like that? They just couldn't get on. Maybe some of you. These believers were hurting in a huge way. So what do they do? Well, James now writes to answer that issue. That very specific issue. 
how to restore a weakened believer is found in James chapter 5. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the book of James. Turn there if you would, if you don't have your Bibles open yet, and follow along in the outline, because there are times when believers are not strong in Christ, but from difficult experiences, from personal betrayal, from torture under persecution, from massive hurt, from false doctrine, and wicked leadership in the context of a church, some believers get really messed up, really messed up, literally damaged in their faith, and they become what the Bible calls weak, weak Christians. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, look what it says. It says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the what? Oh, 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 what? We answer here at FBC. So here we go. Help the weak. Thank you. Be patient with everyone. Here's, here's the key. How do you help uh, a Christian who is really messed up? I mean, they, they've gone through a difficult experience. They're really having a hard time sorting it out. How do you help them? Well, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 17 was written to actually correct and help the weakened believer, the half-brother of Christ, gives instructions on how to minister to them. And I want you to read it aloud with me from your Bibles, if you would, or from the outline. Let's read it so we can read out of the same version together. Everyone together. Ready? 13 through 18. Here we go. Is anyone among you suffering? And he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Uh, Because of the necessity to actually explain this entire passage, stay with me as we walk through this passage to really understand really what he's saying here. Some of the English translation is misleading. So we want to try to drive home what really he's talking about here. This is not the toughest verse in the letter to James, but I'm guaranteeing you it is the toughest paragraph that is found in this little epistle. Like, let me ask these questions that come out of the text. So as I'm looking at these verses and I first start studying them, I ask questions like, what kind of suffering does James have in view in verse 13? Or what type of sickness is in view in verse 14? Why are the prayers of the elders different from those of other believers in verses 14 and 15? What is the anointing of oil described in verse 14? Does the prayer of faith in verse 15 always restore the sick? How does sickness relate to sin, verse 15? What type of healing is in view in verse 16? And why does James insert an illustration about rain in verses 17 and 18 in the middle of a discussion about some sort of healing? Now, there's a lot of questions here. Would you agree? Difficult passage, and again, when the Greek words can be interpreted like one way or translated another way, in other words, both ways are legitimate, when the syntax is unclear as you're going through the text, then the number one issue interpreting the Bible is context. 
context. Lean hard on that. Verses in the Bible are never to be interpreted in isolation. That is a universal principle for young and old. Verses in the Bible should not be interpreted in isolation. They're always in context. So John MacArthur writes this, To properly understand any passage, one must interpret it in light of paragraphs immediately preceding and following it, the chapter or the section that it's in, and the book containing it, the book of James. Context provides the flow of thought in which any passage of Scripture exists. To ignore the context is to sacrifice a proper interpretation. It has been well said that a text without a context is a pretext. Therefore, before attempting to interpret this challenging paragraph, a review of the context in which it is written is essential, end quote. So look at the context. What is James? Who is he writing to here? In James chapter 1, it's mainly Jewish believers who had been forced to flee Palestine because of persecution against Christians. And these, uh, James refers to in chapter 1, verse 1, as the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Being both Jewish and Christians, they were receiving kind of persecution and difficulty, not only from the pagan society, but also from the Jewish community. And knowing that, James opens his epistle right away with, how do you deal with trials, right? He tells us that in James chapter 1, verse 2. And now in chapter 5, he goes back to that same theme of trials, but now he's talking about intense trials. Imagine, just today, you've been grabbed by the police, you've been taken to the police station, you've been beaten, you've been tortured, maybe you've been flogged, and they're trying to get you to understand what you believe or to actually change your beliefs, and then they return you home and you're all beaten up and abused, and basically you're trying to respond to that. Some people will go, praise the Lord, I got beaten for Jesus. Other people are going to go, what in the world is going on? And that's what you have in this particular paragraph. That's what's going on. In fact, when I was in Russia, one time I was dragged to the police station. But what they wanted was a bribe. So no beatings there, okay? Interesting enough, some of these weakened individuals have been, you know, facing difficult issues. In the first six verses of chapter 5, he's talking to his financially poor readers who've suffered at the hands of the wicked rich. And then he talks to those who have been basically the ones who are oppressed and who went through this kind of abuse in verses 7 through 11. He then talks about the oaths that you might have given under duress, but then he's basically setting up now for where we're dealing with. Some were so weakened by this oppression, they needed help. They needed somebody to come alongside them. Their weakened hearts are unable to sort out what's happened to them. And so in verses 13 to 17, James tells us what to do with those struggling believers. Sometimes we do run into struggling believers, and sometimes we become the struggling believers. There are times, it's, it's not as intense as what we have here, but we'll have people who come from churches that exploded or imploded or abused them, and therefore they're kind of messed up, and we let them know that we want them to stay, we want them to not do anything and just sit under the word of God and allow the Lord and God's people to begin to minister to them. Does that make sense? That's part of what's happening here. That's part of what's going on. So James teaches that your main response when you are weak is to pray, is to pray. Even if you don't feel like praying, pray. In addition, confess your sins to one another and ask for mature spiritual help. But mainly to pray. Individuals, individual believers, when weakened, are called to pray in verse 13. The elders are called to pray in verses 14 and 15, or 14 and 15, yeah. And then the entire congregation in verse 16 is called to pray. 
The main emphasis here is pray for them. And as James expresses his compassionate pastoral care for those who have been suffering, uh, his main focus is on the casualties of spiritual battle. There are people sometimes when we're whacked hard by the enemy, we don't respond well. We get beat up. We lose perspective. So these persecuted, weak, defeated believers are the focus here. And the content and the context of this section makes it clear the main subject of these verses is not physical illness. It's not physical healing. That James is concerned about healing spiritual weaknesses. Healing spiritual weariness. Healing spiritual exhaustion. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole book on spiritual depression. People walking through this. Now there's nothing in the preceding context, nothing in the following context that would lead you to interpret this passage as describing physical healing. These are verses about how to help those under persecution and the casualties of persecution. And he says, helping the weak requires mature help, it requires fellowship, and most of all prayer. Okay, mature help, fellowship, and most of all prayer. And where do we start? Well, we have four main points today. Miraculously, they all start with the letter R. So here we go. Number one in your outline, evaluate the different reactions, the different reactions to hurtful oppression. James begins by reminding you that every, everyone reacts differently to oppression. Okay? It's okay. It doesn't mean you're stronger. It doesn't mean you're better. It just everybody reacts differently. Well, what are you saying, Chris? Well, take a look at verse 13. All right? Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must what? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he must what? Sing praises. Everybody reacts differently. James's pastoral heart is just immediately going out after the suffering. Now, this will help you to understand this passage. That word suffering is very specific. He's not talking about physical illness at all. He's describing a suffering that comes from people. That's a specific word. It's a suffering about being abused, persecuted, and treated wickedly by people. The word suffering by people is key to understanding that. And that specific word means exactly that. So you could actually write that in your Bible and it would help you to begin to understand the context here. James says the antidote for their suffering is verse 13, then you must pray to pray. Now because you say why? Well because God alone is the one who brings comfort, right? Is God alone the ultimate source of comfort? Sure. In fact, uh, Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. And then 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter motivates you with be casting all your anxiety upon him because he what? Cares for you. So the present tense, he must pray, is telling you you're not just praying once. He wants you to be continually praying. Praying over and over and over. Let him literally keep on praying. That's the literal translation here. So basically, when you're weak in faith, weary of persecution, crushed by affliction, you continually plead with God to be a comfort to you. You don't stop. You keep doing this over and over again. You could ask people who've gone through difficult times, did you pray? And are you ready? Are you still praying? Are you still praying? You say, well, I don't feel like it. Do it anyway. Well, I don't think God's there. Do it anyway. Go to prayer. That's what he's saying to you. 
And then that's right. And James adds, those who manage to maintain a cheerful attitude in their suffering will sing praises. Cheerful means well in spirit, having joyful attitude. He's not describing, again, those who are doing physically well, but those who are rejoicing and happy and thankful. They're, they're singing praises. They're praying the Psalms. But those who are weak, those who are worn out, those who are struggling from their torture are to be continually praying. But no matter how you respond, with whether praise or prayer, number two in your outline, you need to engage the resources for restoration. This is the resources. Again, community group leaders, discipleship leaders, this is how you help someone who's really been beat up. This is what you do. You recognize that people respond differently. Secondly, you engage the resources. Now, what are they? Well, take a look at verse 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Now, we're going to look at a better translation of that. Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And all you essential oil people are going, yes, there it is. Biblical support. Finally. Verse 15. <laughs> Sorry. And the prayer, uh, you know, tea tree, you know, frankincense. Oh, yeah, yeah. The prayer offered in the faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins, and they will be forgiven him. Now, at first glance, again, this looks like healing, uh, healing sick believers, but the passage is not about physical healing. Again, that view is out of sync with the context, and don't overreact, though. God is a healing God. God still heals. He does. God sometimes chooses to heal. Sometimes God chooses not to heal. Jesus often healed, and his unique proxies, the apostles, were gifted to heal. But neither Jesus nor his apostles healed everyone. Neither that, that. And even though God does heal, the church today does not demand healing. We don't demand it. We don't claim it. Nor do we put our trust in healers. The gift of healing was a sign gift that was uniquely to the apostles given to them during the formation of the New Testament. And then the apostles, as they transitioned, so did the sign gifts. And when God heals, it's always accordance to his will, and it's most often an answer to the earnest prayers of God's people. It really is. God does not guarantee to heal everyone. It's never been a guarantee of the scripture. And even as the apostolic age died out, Paul needed the constant physical ministry of Luke, the beloved physician, Plus, Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is an apostle who left that guy sick. And then he advised Timothy to take a little wine with his stomach ache and for his stomach's sake uh, in his frequent sicknesses in 1 Timothy 5. So what does James then ask here? God is a healing God, but was this what's being talked about? He says, is anyone here sick? Now let me help you with something. I'll be very specific. Sick is used 18 times as illness. And 14 times as spiritual weakness. But that includes the entire New Testament. When you're just looking at the epistles, only three times is it referring to physical sickness. And all the remaining ones are talking about spiritual weakness. The vast majority of spiritual weakness. So like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, it says that the, describing spiritual weakness that was produced by the sufferings of life just like James here, what's he saying? 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Therefore, I am well content with what? Tell me. Weaknesses. Well content with weaknesses. Same word. 
with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for, the, for Christ's sake. For when I am, what? Weak. Same word, as we have in James here, then I am strong. The predominant usage of the Greek word translated sick is weakness. Write that in your Bible, weakness. These believers had become spiritually weak through their intense suffering. They are weak from being defeated in spiritual battle. They're fallen spiritual warriors. They're exhausted. They're weary. They're depressed. They're confused Christians. They have tried to draw on God's power through prayer. Uh, They have lost their motivation, even falling into sinful attitudes. They've hit bottom. They're struggling with their prayer life effectively, ongoingly. And in that condition, the spiritually weak desperately need the spiritually strong. You say, who are the strong? James says that help is found from the elders. Look what he says in verses 14. Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him. Pray over them. Now, the elders are the spiritually strong, the spiritually mature, the spiritually victorious. Weak, defeated believers are to go to them and draw on their strength. You know how sometimes when you're feeling really down or low, and you get with somebody who's really walking in the Spirit and very encouraged, they build you up, correct? Well, that's what he's talking about. Those weakened believers need to go to those who are walking with the Lord, on fire with Him, so to speak, and fresh with Him. And so they're to call a meeting, uh, meaning the call there is to call alongside. The elders are to come to those beaten up, uh, externally, they've been all trashed, and internally, their hearts are messed up, and lift them up in prayer. And it's a similar thought that's expressed in Galatians 6.1. Take a look at it. Brethren, even if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual or in the spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So the wounded, exhausted, broken sheep are to go to their shepherds who will intercede for them and ask God to renew their spiritual strength. And then he adds this in verse 14. Then he must call for the elders of the church and they're to pray over him, anointing him with what? Oil in the name of the Lord. Now what is this anointing? Wow, this is going to get you. The Greek word anointing is never used in the New Testament as a symbolic ceremony, but as uh, A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, says, quote, it is more used, this anointing, to refer to rubbing on oil as a medical practice. Perhaps the best way to translate the phrase would be rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The Greek literally means after having oiled him. That's what it's saying. End quote. There's a strong possibility that the elders literally rubbed oil on believers who had suffered physical injuries. They were trashed. They were whipped. They were scourged. And so they're pouring oil on their injuries, on their bodies, as a result of their persecution and torture. This is exactly what happened to the Good Samaritan. Remember that? He finds the man beat up on the road. And what does he do? In Luke 10, 34, and he came to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring what? Oil and wine, disinfectant, on them. They didn't have many trustworthy doctors back then. Medicine was very primitive back then. There was no penicillin. Therefore, it's a gracious act for elders to rub oil on the wounds of those who've been beaten. Now, This oil is not when you feel bad and not when you have the flu and not when you get COVID. Uh, This is not casting out a demon of post-nasal drip. This is not a supernatural commissioning and this is not essential oils here. Now, maybe it is tea tree, eucalyptus, I don't know. I don't know if it's frankincense, I don't know. That's pretty expensive. But you've been beaten 
and your wounds are fresh and open, and oil is meant to what? Help you. Help you. So, the elders' ministry of prayer and kindness was to done, look at the text, it says, in the name of the Lord. Now, when you pray in the name of the Lord, you're asking what He would want. When you minister in the name of the Lord, you're doing what He would want. So this is Jesus basically calling us to do John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, according to my character, according to my will, that I will do. That's what he's saying. I'm going to do and answer prayers according to my will, my wishes. So the result of the elders' comfort and ministry of prayer is verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. It says, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is weak, and the Lord will raise him up, and as if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Again, sick is kind of misleading. It's not physical illness, but spiritual restoration of weak, defeated believers. It's spiritual restoration of weak, defeated believers. Uh, nor does restore here refer to physical healing. It really is translated in the New Testament more as save. Save in the New Testament. The idea is the elders' prayers will deliver the weak, defeated believers from their spiritual weakness. Then restore them to spiritual wholeness. Their prayers are a channel for God's power. It's the Lord who will raise him up and raise up. This is really cool. When it says to raise him up, he's talking about to awaken, to arouse him. You ever known somebody who is just, they're just flat in their spiritual life? And, and they've gone through a difficult time and they're just flat. There's nothing going on. And then they're encouraged, they're exhorted, they're, 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 they're around solid believers and all of a sudden they're vibrant again. Remember that? Maybe you've experienced that yourself. That's what he's talking about here. It says that basically that the result will be is that they'll be encouraged, encouraged and restored to wholeness. In other words, God will restore his battered sheep's enthusiasm, their spiritual vigor, and their desire to serve the Lord in all things. And then he adds, if one of the spiritually weak believers has committed sins, take a look at verse 15, they'll be forgiven. Again, He's talking about spiritual issues here, not physical issues. Sin, spiritual restoration. The Bible nowhere, anywhere, teaches that all sickness is the direct result of an individual sin. It never does. However, spiritual defeat, depression, weakness is often both the cause and the result of sin. And when that is the case, James says the antidote is to confess those sins to God and obtain forgiveness. You know, Christians today have forgotten the rare privilege and the rare joy and the incredible ministry of confession. I'm not talking about a booth with a priest. I'm talking about confession to God and confession to one another. Look at Psalm 32, verse 5. Look at it. David confessed, I acknowledge my sin to you, he says. I acknowledge it. My iniquity, I did not hide it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Confess means to agree with God, to say the same thing. That's what it means. So you're saying the same thing that God says about your sin. You're saying, God, it's my fault. I'm taking full blame for it. I'm not blaming anyone else, and I'm not blaming you. It's completely me. When you confess, and you know what he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if sin has contributed to or resulted from the spiritual weakness or defeat of a beaten believer, that sin will be forgiven when he cries out to God for forgiveness. 
the elders will encourage him to confess and help him discern his sins and join their prayers to his for his forgiveness. And then the Lord will uplift, restore, return his previous vigor and peace. And that's the essential element of their ministry of restoration. So helping the weak requires mature help. It requires fellowship and most of all prayer. So number three in your outline, enfold the requirement of the church. Engage the resources and now emphasize the requirement of the church for the restoration from hurt. Immersion into the body of Christ is necessary for complete spiritual healing. Oh, let me say it again. You got to connect to God's people. Now, here's, here's where it gets scary. You know what's going on here? Some of these people under torture have actually done harm to the church. And yet, Paul, James says, you need to go back to the church, confess those sins, and get restored to the body. Not go hide, not go isolate, but be open and honest and genuine. While under torture, some of these people denied Christ, or they tell the authorities where the church met. In some situations, they made you watch as they tortured your spouse. So you gave up names of other Christians. So then when they release you, what's your natural response? To run away, to hide from the people that you've, you know, basically, you know, outed. And to hide in shame. But James says, no, verse 16, what's he say? Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, I don't know if we're ever going to get to torture in our culture. I don't know, okay? But understand, I know this for a fact, that under torture, they can make you say anything. They can make you say anything. They can keep doing it until you lose your mind. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what's happening in some of these contexts here. People just lost their minds under the extreme pain of being tortured in horrific ways. And so James makes this transition. He goes, I, I really want you to see the therefore there. Therefore, in verse 16, you always want to ask, that wherefore is that therefore, therefore? And James is turning his attention from the sins committed by the persecuted, defeated believers to the entire congregation. And here's God's exhortation. All of us here need to confess our sins to one another. All of us here need to confess our sins to one another. When you wait, when you conceal, when you think it's just too awful to admit, uh, it'll eat you alive with guilt, and then that concealing will result in your spiritual defeat. Sin is never meant to be remaining within. It is to be confessed. Look at Solomon, how pointed he is in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgression, say it, what? Will not prosper. One more time. If you conceal your sin, you will not prosper, specifically. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Sin is the most dangerous when it's concealed. Sin does the greatest damage when it's concealed and you're isolated, distant, unconnected, not friends with other Christians. Sin loves to remain private Sin loves to remain secret, but God wants you to expose it and deal with it in loving fellowship with other believers. So James says mutual honesty and mutual confession is absolutely crucial to believers to pray, verse 16, for one another. Cultivate open, sharing, praying relationships with other Christians helps keep believers from weakness and defeat in their spiritual life. 
That's what he's talking about here. An honest confession of those sins destroying you internally, James says, verse 16, what's he say? It will heal you. Heal you. Not one of you here, no Christian alive, was ever meant to be a solo saint. Not of us. There, there, there's none of that in the New Testament. It is absolutely foreign to the entire New Testament. We are to live interconnected to each other. Interconnected, even with our strengths and even with our weaknesses. Let's not pretend, friends, every person in this room is still a sinner, a saint who sins, correct? You've been born again, you've been made new, but you are not in heaven yet, and you are battling with it. Let's not pretend. So let's deal with it. Others help you deal with your sins, and not every church can handle that. But I think, I pray, and I believe that by God's grace we can. Let me, let me test you right now. Let's try it out. Raise your hand. How many of you have lied? Can I see your hands? All right. Now here goes the big test. How many have lied this week? Ooh. <laughs> Those people are sitting next to you right now. How many of you have, have been angry ever in your life? How many of you have been angry this week? How about this morning? I'm not rejoicing over your sin. I'm rejoicing over the fact that you would admit it. Because confession is a part of our healing. And for the beat up, wiped out Christian, they've got to get it out. They've got to say it to the Lord. They've got to say it to their brothers and sisters. It's the way that we survive. Galatians 6 says, I'm not going to ask you how many lusted this week. That just says... Not healthy. Uh, so, Galatians 6 says we're to help each other. It says actually bear each other's up, hold each other up when we're sinning. Sometimes we're helping people walk along. That's what we do. You isolated individuals who call yourselves Christians, you're, if you are a Christian, you are hindering your own growth in Christ. You are hindering your own growth if you're isolated. And Jesus through James here, says, verse 16, the Lord designed Christian relationships to give spiritual strength necessary to provide victory over sin. Now, that doesn't mean we're not responsible for our own sin. We are, and we have to take issue with that, and we need to make sure we're right before the Lord individually, but we also lean on each other and help each other. And true Christian community also provides godly encouragement to confess and forsake sin before they become overwhelmingly destructive in your life to the point of spiritual weakness and spiritual defeat. I mean, the purpose for this mutual confession and prayer, look what he says in verse 16, is that believers will be healed. Now, let me help you with the healing here, all right? One more time. This word does not necessarily refer to physical healing. Matthew uses heal to designate forgiveness. Hebrews uses heal to designate spiritual restoration. Peter uses it to portray the healing from sin that Christ purchased for you on the cross. So there's cause to see James's use of healing here as God's forgiveness, which makes us then repentant believers spiritually whole again. So James concludes now with helping the weak requires mature help fellowship and most of all it requires what answer prayer number four in your outline embrace the reviving power of prayer to restore weakened christians the power of prayer prayer from the obedient is powerful and necessary for full restoration 
it's powerful and necessary. James was known as, are you ready for this? The author of this letter, the guy who wrote this letter, his nickname, everybody know it? Old Camel Knees. That was his nickname. That's actually in church history. And the reason for that is because he prayed so much, his kneecaps got really weird looking because he was on his knees so much. So here he is, old camel knees, telling us this powerful challenge for you and I over not only the power of prayer, but the absolute necessity of prayer. What's he say? Verse 16. Take a look at the end of verse 16. Effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish what? Much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James encourages the elders here, and all Christians, the importance of intercession, prayer, for those who have lost their way as believers, prayer is effective. Now, what does the New Testament teach about answered prayer? Understand, there's a lot. I went through the entire New Testament here. And when it teaches about answered prayer, it's basically God answers prayers which are in keeping with the will of God, made in faith, made by a person who's confessed and fleeing sin. He answers prayers by those who are made under the direction and power of the Holy Spirit, made by a person who has forgiven others, made by a person who's in harmony with others, made in the name of Jesus, which means in harmony with his character, his attributes, his purpose, his concerns, persistently offered and asked for unselfishly. Now, basically, you know what that means? For every Christian in this room right now, prayer is like breathing. And if you try to live the Christian life without prayer, it's actually like you walking through life trying to hold your breath. You know, through a tunnel, it's fun. But all throughout all of life, all through all of life, it's not. You need prayer. We need to develop regular prayer and unceasing prayer. Prayer as we're having conversations. Prayer as we're thinking about issues. Prayer as we're dealing with trials. Prayer. And James says in verse 16, prayer is effective, which is the same word we get our English word for energy. It's energizing. It's energetic. Prayer is the one thing that those who have been made righteous by Christ and those who seek to live righteously can accomplish much. Those who are made righteous and those who are seeking to live righteously, their prayers can accomplish much. And that literally means it's very powerful. It's very strong. Uh, John MacArthur again says, weak prayers come from weak people. Strong prayers come from strong people. The energetic prayers of a righteous man are the potent force in calling down the power of God for restoring weak, struggling believers to spiritual health. Now, to drive this home, uh, James gives us an illustration, a prayer illustration from the Old Testament with Elijah. And even though Elijah was a prophet and a man of God, he was also just like you and I in this room. And that's why he says, when he says he's just like you and me, he had a nature just like ours, he says. And basically, 1 Kings tells us that Elijah was hungry, he was afraid, uh, Jezebel was, uh, you know, after him, and he got really depressed. And he's actually an example of the process of depression and how to get out of depression, amazingly. So he's, a, he's just like us. 
Yet when he prayed, verse 17, and it says prayed earnestly, and that literally means praying with prayer. I mean, you're just going for it. You're not going to stop. You're just going to keep praying until it happens. Astounding things happened here. Verse 17, it did not rain on earth for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah's prayers both created and ended an incredibly three-and-a-half-year drought. And that's a big thing in a kind of a, a agrarian culture, right? Drought is a big thing. And it started it and ended it. And in 1 Kings 17, it records the drought, but only James gives its duration and links it to the prayers of Elijah. Now, look at this text would you now use your brain i hope the oatmeal's working but the story of elijah and the drought would certainly be strange if james were talking about physical healing or healing throughout this passage <clears throat> there are many illustrations of biblical healing that james could have used and he knew uh, through uh, you know his own his own half brother and the lord jesus christ he could have referred to many of those and, and through his epistle, he refers to events in the Gospels, etc. But you know there are many illustrations he could have used, but the picture of rain pouring down on parched ground, doesn't that illustrate God's outpouring spiritual blessing on the dry and parched souls of those who have been weakened, struggling believers? And that God answers prayer where they become fruitful again, especially the prayers of the godly. Those who live 24-7, dependent on the Spirit of God, obedient to God's word, helping the weak requires mature help, fellowship, and most of all, prayer. Now, this is a tough passage, is it not? Difficult passage. Difficult passage for me to preach, difficult passage for you to hear, but understand, I want you to get the full meaning of it, so I wrote it out in Mullerese, uh, which is a translation of the passage at the end. So you read silently as I read aloud what I believe this passage is teaching us. And again, in the context there are Christians that have been beat up, and they're really hurting, and some of them are messed up in their thinking, and they could really use some help, and this is the answer. What does it say? It says, verse 13, is anyone among you being abused or treated wickedly by people? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing psalms. Verse 14, is anyone among you spiritually weak from persecution? Then he must ask for the elders of the church to come alongside him, and they are to pray over him, rubbing his wounds with oil, just as Christ would. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will deliver the defeated, abused believer, and the Lord will again awaken his desire to serve Christ with joy. And if he has committed sins in the process of being abused by people from persecution, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another, agree with God that it is your fault, that it is your sin and no one else's fault, and pray for one another so that you may be spiritually restored again. The powerful prayer of those who have been made righteous and live righteously is very strong. Verse 17, Elijah was just like us, he was hungry, afraid, even depressed, and yet he gave himself to prayer, and it stopped raining for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and it rained once more, bringing blessing to a parched land, just like godly prayers will be a blessing to the parched hearts of abused believers. I believe that would be an expanded understanding of what this paragraph is saying to us. I hope it's an encouragement to you, so let's take it home with some final challenges, shall we? Here we go. Letter A Force yourself to pray before you start your day. There you go. I worked really hard to be rhymey there. 
Force yourself to pray before you start your day. Use Acts. You know, A-T-A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Start this. Put a note on the mirror. Put your alarm clock on the other side of the room. Put it where it bothers you and you can't turn it off. It screams at you, whatever. Get up early. Do what you got to do. Put a reminder on your phone that it beeps and it won't stop going away until you've accomplished this. Work at developing a habit. There are two habits you need to develop. Are you ready? Number one, you need some time where you just say, this is my time with the Lord. You need some time. And sometimes for some of us, it's going to start three minutes then five minutes, then 10 minutes. You need some time. You need just some regular time. It doesn't need to be at the same time every day. You got a weird schedule, that's fine. Just some regular time. And the second thing you need to develop is how to continue in prayer throughout the day to remind yourself. I had a friend who said every time he went through a doorway, he remembered to pray. Uh, people like Chris, myself, I'll write something on my hand, reminds me to pray. I try to remember to pray in conversations. I just always ask the Lord wisdom, give me wisdom, because I, I can't, I don't know what to do in this situation. Just develop those two habits. You in this room need to develop both of those habits. Some continual, consistent time, and then continual time. You need both to survive with what's coming. Letter B, you need immersion in the church body to survive spiritually as a believer. Immersion in the church body. No, you look at you take an organ out of your body and it is not going to survive outside of your body unless it's interconnected to your body, correct? Well, you are an organ in the church family and you are not going to survive outside the context of the church family. That's the way God designed it. So get involved, start serving, join a CG, serve somewhere. Spectator Christianity is not a New Testament option. We are not the super committed church. I'm not asking you to be super committed. I'm just asking you to be a normal Christian. Normal Christianity. Now, our culture is not normal, but this is normal. Everything you see in other places is not normal, but this is normal Christianity, and we've moved that far away from it. Be engaged. Be interactive to survive. Letter C. Sin for the Christian is to be confessed always to God, often to genuine believers. One of the main means of grace for overcoming your sin struggles are Christians. They're, they're the means of grace. Stop going it alone. Get relational. Build trust so you can battle sin together. Listen, you, we don't need, I don't want to hear your dark closet of sins. I don't. But someone does. Someone needs to know. You need to talk to somebody. You don't, you don't have to find, you know, just, just someone that you trust, that you're praying together. You, you may have, and I think about this all the time, you may have had a, an abortion. Uh, you may have stolen something valuable. You, you may have destroyed a person verbally. Listen, no one at our church is going to be shocked that you're a sinner. One more time. No one at our church is going to be shocked that you're a sinner. We assume it. We know you have a dark past. We know you've done things that you don't want anybody to know about. We know it. We do, don't we? We know it. Therefore, find someone to trust, to work those things through, to confess, and to move on. Get help, confess, get whole again. Don't let those sins define you. Move on. And letter D, if you're a church attender who is weakened, interconnect, don't isolate. 
Some get weakened because of their sin. Listen to me. Others, even in our congregation, are regularly abused because of their race. Others grow weak because they were attacked by a so-called church or leadership. Sick churches, sick leadership. Someday soon, you may be weakened by being put on trial or put in jail. Are you ready? Fined in some way because you hate speech. You need a relationship with Christ, not a religion. You need real internal church family friends and not phony, external, superficial interactions. Turn to Christ. Surrender to Him. He's the only way of salvation. God loved you enough that He actually punished His Son on your behalf, rose from the dead. When you put your faith in Him, He covers you and makes you ready and changes you so you want to follow Him. So turn to Christ. Immerse yourself in His body. Are you ready? Get strong. Get deep and get ready. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you again for your word. We pray that you would use your word to change our lives, that you would use your word to transform us into the men and women you want us to be, and that you would use your word to draw some to yourself. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified by how we respond to what you have done today. We pray that this passage would be more clear to us and also a massive encouragement to us. And Father, we'll give you thanks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.